to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, welcome. It's good to see you. We're going to do the second part of uh, prepare for battle. We didn't finish it last week, but we're going to go ahead and finish this week as we look at First Peter chapter 4. As Christians, we are called to a life of suffering. We are called, you and I, to a life of suffering. You will not escape it. We suffer in salvation. We suffer through our sanctification, through submission, and in service. The message, though, of 1 Peter is not saying, listen, you're just going to get it, so deal with it. But it actually is the theme of hope, how we endure, how we live through, how we respond to suffering. He instructs us that God's people are going to be a minority in a world that seeks its own. It's going to have a difficult time knowing and learning how to cope with those of us who have a faith in Christ. It's our very response to, uh, to, excuse me, it's our very response to suffering that many times will lead others to learn who Christ is. Peter has been calling these first century Christians to prepare to suffer. Dustin, we had said last week, had ended his previous message weeks ago with this paraphrase of Peter's exhortation and saying that while you're here on this earth, do not fear any persecution or any suffering. Instead, follow God's will no matter what the cost. This is the better way. Do not give up. Do not give in. This is the better path, Scripture tells us, even though it will include suffering. Following Christ is worth the the cost. The question that we tried to answer last week, or we began the answer, is how do we do this? The answer is sanctification. God's work in making us more like Christ and going back to the monitor, we have to ask, what is that sanctification? And we answered it with a definition from Wayne Grubman, who has written that sanctification is a progressive work of God. It's something that is ongoing. It's not totally complete, but it's an ongoing work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I'm sure many of you would wish, boy, I wish I was freer from sin. I mean, is there anyone that like me that says, man, I just, I just wish I didn't battle so much with it? Anyone? Or is are anyone here sinless perfection yet? Some of you are close. Oh, some of you? Okay. <laughs> You're saying the other. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, we're not. And we know that that battle is difficult from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. And sometimes even in our dream state, we struggle and battle with sin. But Christ says that sanctification is going to come through suffering as he edges out and sandpapers the edges of our lives. It means to be set apart, consecrated for a special purpose, even at, or like Israel that was set apart from God and was a nation for God. God used them to magnify himself and to, and to share with others who he was. We too are called as people of God to do so. The point that we saw is that we must recognize that we've been called out and chosen by God and dispersed around the world that we may be salt and light to the world around us. There is to be something different about those who make a confession of faith in Christ, those who profess Christ. 
One of the ways that God sets apart and makes us different is how you and I respond to suffering. So Peter is writing to encourage us in our suffering. This is how one who trusts in Christ responds. And that led us to our passage of 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's reread those verses once again just to remind ourselves of what he was saying to those first century Christians. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so, Father, we ask once again the same blessing that we asked last week as we looked at this passage. Open up our minds and hearts that we may be armed with the same way of thinking as Christ. Let us see that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. And there may be some here that are struggling, that are suffering, that are, that are really feeling that burn, that sandpaper, that, that heavy burden. Father, they, may they be encouraged. For those of us that maybe life is going around pretty smoothly, maybe it's time for us to question whether or not we've ever actually picked up our cross and followed you completely. In whatever case, we pray that your spirit may have free reign and that we may respond to his call this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So last week we started with four observations. We got through one. And so I just want to review that real quickly for those who may not have been here and just to get us in the right mind. Is that the first observation from that passage is believers have a new motivation in life. He tells us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. What's the same way of thinking? Well, what Dustin had preached several weeks ago in the fact that we need to recognize that we are need to suffer as Christ did. In other words, we need to realize that we have a new motivation, a new way of thinking in life. And we have looked at how the scriptures has tells us that once we were hostile in our thinking, in our minds towards God. Once we followed the passions of our youth. We, we followed the desire to seek serving only ourselves. Galatians says that we've crucified the flesh with our passions and desires. Paul reminded his, his protege Titus that we once were foolish and disobedience led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, frankly stated that our passions are at war with ourselves. So Peter, recognizing this, even about Christians, says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. In other words, be ready, be prepared for battle. This is a military language when he says to arm yourselves. We need to realize that there's a battle out there. There is a fight. The Bible says we need to have the mindset of Christ who in Hebrews 12 tells us, let us run with endurance the race that is set so easily or set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So what's the same mind? How are we to arm ourselves? How do we prepare ourselves for the suffering that we may face? 
is to have the mind of Christ with joy. Facing it with joy. Not looking to avoid it, not looking to run over it, to run underneath it, but to face it, recognizing as we saw in James and earlier in 1 Peter, that the suffering that you and I face is actually ordained of God and it serves his purposes in our life. We have a new way of thinking that prevents us uh, from accepting enduring suffering. We need that type of new attitude that prevents us from accepting and enduring suffering with joy. Discipline and grit is going to be needed. We saw that Dr. Thomas Schreiner notes that this commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. And so we saw that believers have a new motivation of life. We're to look at life differently. We're to de- desire different things. And we challenge you. What dominates your thoughts, your energy, your time, and money? Is it God or, its own, or your own passions? And we exhorted you, as John Piper has said in a book, don't waste your life on things that will not last. Jesus said it even better. Don't waste your life on things that will decay, that moss, moth and rust will decay, but put your treasure in heaven. Whatever your time on earth is, live zealously for God. Paul wrote to his disciple Titus that Jesus himself gave himself so that he may redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we talked at and we ended last week as our time drew near the end is that's to be done in the context of community. As he says, let us consider how to provoke one another or I'm sorry, to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So as we come here today, we're to consider one another. We're to build one another up. We're to stir one another up to continue to live the life that God has called. And that begins with a new way of thinking and approaching life and the suffering that comes, the battle of sin that faces each and every one of us. So that leads us to point number two, and let's go there because that's where we're at today. Is not only do believers have a new motivation for life, Believers are not, number two, are not to waste their life pursuing sinful passions. Believers, those that are Christians, are not to waste their life pursuing those things that are not godly. Look at verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The principle, the why of the command to arm ourselves, as we look at the precepts and the principles, the principle here is found in verse 2. Essentially, Peter is saying, you have wasted enough of time following your own passions. Though we have been saved and forgiven of our sins, we understand that as Christians, we still struggle with sin. Amen? Each and every one of us do. We still hear its call to come out and play. We think that we are in control of our sin. We think that we can serve God and still cling to those old sinful habits or desires. <clears throat> we have convinced ourselves that we need those sins to get by, but that they now serve our purposes. However, we are sadly and dangerously mistaken. <coughs> 
God told Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, you may remember the story, Cain, who killed his brother Abel. He tells him in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that sin is crouching at its door. Think of that verse. This is the word picture that God paints. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, Cain, but you must rule over it. God paints the word picture of sin as a predatory animal, like a panther maybe hiding in the shadows of the jungle, patiently waiting to pounce on its unsuspecting prey as he walks by. In saying this, God is telling Cain and us as well that it, that, that it is more than just accidental, accidental or a problem. Sin is something more than just that we think we control or just an accident or I didn't mean to do it. It is something that actually kills and destroys. It destroys marriages. It kills relationships. That killer is inside each and every one of us. The enemy within our hearts betray us. Satan doesn't use the passions and the desires of someone else to tempt you. James tells us he uses the the materials from within us. Sin will do more than just get you into trouble or have bad consequences. It will consume you. And you and I, many of us, could give testimony to that very thing. Pastor Tim Keller of New York writes that sin is a suicidal... Listen to this. I love how he writes this. He says, sin is the suicidal action of the human soul against itself. Let me say that again. Listen to this. When you and I sin, it is the suicidal action of the human soul against itself. Sinful actions, he goes on to write, creates a dark reality in your life that stays with you. Sin creates bad habits. It creates distorted affections. These things control you and you start to lose control of yourself. You're surrendering to something that wants to kill you. Do you understand that? Sin is something that wants to kill you and when you fall to that temptation, you are surrendering to it. It's akin to lying down and turning your belly and throat towards the beast that desires to rip you apart. In the next chapter, Peter warns that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But you and I don't think of Satan and sin that way. We must remember that Paul warns that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Peter goes on to list some of those vices that you and I are to kill as we look at this passage once again. Remember what Paul wrote earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he has called you as holy, you must be holy in all your conduct. But Peter seems it's fit to hear to say once again, Hey believers, you elect exiles. Do not waste your life pursuing sinful passions. All the the years that you've wasted before, that's enough. It suffices. No longer resist it. Flee from it. We are new creatures. As Paul will write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So friends, as the Bible tells us, we must kill sin. We must put it away. 
We must resist it and run away from it. Do not let yourself be drawn back into that fruitless world. Yes, I'm going to tell you, sin is desirable. It is tempting and maybe even a place of comfort to you today. But its path leads to destruction. To make friends with sin is to clear yourself an enemy of God. Scripture goes as far as to say that those who embrace sin are truly not of God. So not not only does he call us to have a new way of thinking, but he says here, Christians, Christians do not waste your life by playing and dallying around with sin, for it will destroy you. The third observation I'd like to make is that believers have a new way of living. We have a new way of living that will bring ridicule, rejection, and repercussions. Being a Christian is not easy. Dustin and I jokingly remarked we have a new hashtag. For those of you who like to do hashtags, it's hashtags, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. To live a godly life, to be a Christian, is going to cost you something. You must remember a a believer's decision in that day, as even as it does today, to refrain from the activities that he just said. Those partings, that sensuality, those passions. Our decision to refrain from these activities will be surprising and not understood by the world, especially if you were involved with them before. For those of you who came to Christ later in life, when your life has a markably changed, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to understand this is what you're doing. Just this morning, Dawn and I are driving through McDonald's and we asked for two cups of, of water with straws. And so the young lady, she's a young lady, she gives us the water. She's just trying to make conversation. He says, oh, you need this water because you're hung over, Right. Yeah, you know, even dream, you know, we're in church clothes and all this. I didn't have my Bible out or anything at this time. And, and Donna and I are just not sure what to say. And she goes on to say about partying and drinking and all that all night. And not quite sure to say. And I said, well, no, it wasn't us. It was our neighbors. Because our neighbors were shooting off stuff until like 2.33 in the morning. But, you know, it's like we were almost like not quite sure what to say. It wasn't Tony. <laughs> at least I don't think so. But the thing is, is we're like, we're like, what do we say? We almost now, if we were to say, no, we don't drink. Yeah, have you ever done that? You know, you go, to, you go to a place, oh, would you like to have this and this and this? Well, we don't really drink or we don't do this. People are going to treat you. They're not going to know how to respond to that. Many times you will find that your family, your friends, and your coworkers will have different values and aspirations. Now, if you're a Christian and your family, friends, and them are not, and your aspirations and values are the same, then we got a problem. Because there should be a marked difference. This will cause conflict. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' words here to his disciples are very difficult to swallow. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Here we see that Jesus is not a beatnik. He's not snapping fingers or playing bongos or grabbing hands and singing kumbaya. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth in verse 34 of chapter 10. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
I thought that was just natural. Uh, Verse 36, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The hard answer is that not everyone will be accepting of your new life in Christ. Your commitment to follow Christ will cost you. Peter writes that they will malign you, meaning that they will heap abuse on you, they will criticize, they will defame, and they will ridicule you. Now finally, we find here in 1 Peter the persecution here that's being, not, that's being pointed out. This signifies the type of persecution these believers most likely were facing at this time in Asia Minor. From what we understand of history at that time, these first century Christians in Asia were not facing any state-sponsored persecution, but cultural, social, and economic persecution from family, from friends, and neighbors. Because they had followed the examples of the Thessalonians who had turned from idols to serve the living and true God, they were social outcasts. Now you must remember that life in those days were much different. We now live in a society where our personal religious faith and our social or economic or or work is separated. In those days, when you went to a party in a a house, when you went went in a house, it was a worship. You would first kill the animal, the animal or whatever, and then you would, you would sacrifice it or give prayer to that idol. If you went to a market, those were things that were sacrificed already to idols. So for them, even to have a, a working lunch together would create some type of religious uh, ceremony with it. So you can imagine, here they are sitting here. One day, they're sitting there at the family di- dinner, and the dad here says, okay, let's slay this to it and worship Caesar. And then the next day, God gets saved, or maybe the wife gets saved, and the father and mother starts to do that, and they say, wait, I can't participate in that no longer. You could imagine the discord that would have brought into a family, into a life. This was not a private and public separation of worship in that time. It's similar to what we see with many Muslim countries today where it's all one and the same. And we don't understand that in our cultural. But in those days, that's what they would be facing. All of a sudden, homes would be literally split for what are you to do? It'd be very difficult. Especially as we talked about, about the husband and the wife if one was saved and one was not. Especially if it was the wife. That had been very difficult for her. Or if you're the head of a household, maybe you are the husband, but you're going now to your parents or your father-in-laws, or you're just going to work, and all of a sudden, you're not saying, Hail Caesar any longer and worshiping. Your life would become dramatically, drastically changed. You can almost imagine how this change of behavior and refusing to worship would bring repercussions and ridicule. Let's just look at us today. What would happen? How do we think of people today who do not stand to pledge allegiance or stand during the, during the, the, um, the national anthem? How have we responded? We, we look at those people with suspicion. There's one, I, can't, I can never say his name, uh, from San Francisco, the one football player. For some, many are saying that's why he can't get a job. I, I don't know if that's true or not. 
But we don't look on them. We look at them with suspicion. We look on people. Why, why wouldn't they want to do that? What, what's wrong with them? For today, that's finding itself now in the cultural things. If you would say someone is a man and someone is a woman, how dare you make that gender appropriation for them? Ask them what they are, who they are, how do they identify. We live in a day and age today where your children can be taken to, uh, in Canada. In Canada, a law has been passed that if, that if a Christian couple do not honor their children's gender identity, those children can be taken away from them. In Britain, a Jewish, a Jewish girl's school must teach uh, um, gender identification and homosexuality uh, uh, curriculum. We find ourselves more than more finding ourselves the same way when we don't bow down to social economic gods that people have created. And so what we're finding here, as he says, people will malign you for that. They'll ridicule you, reject you. There will be repercussions when you do not live as they live. And you and I must understand that. We must be ready for that. We must not be surprised. Turn, if you would, real quickly to Acts chapter 19. We just got a few moments. You know what? I'm not going to go. I'll just tell you about it. In Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul and his companions are maligned in their work among the Ephesians. It says here that many things are going, to, going on here. There, was a, there rose a little disturbance concerning the way. He says there was a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver, silver shrines of Artemis. And he brought no little business to the craftsmen. It was a, it was a, it was a boom to them to make those little crafts, those little, those little idols. And he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made, that gods made with hands are not gods. And he says there's a danger, not only this trade of ours may come in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess may come as also. So he went and they arrested him and they changed and were caught up and they were beaten and kicked out of the, kicked out of the city. Our commitment to Christ will not be popular. Some of you are saying amen. You already understand that. Your commitment to follow Christ will not be popular. And I think that's what the problem is, that the church today wants to be popular rather than faithful. So let me ask you, do you want to be popular or do you want to be faithful? How are you raising your children to be popular or to be faithful? Paul instructs these Ephesians to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. Jesus had preached that the light has come to the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. They will not like your faithful stance for Christ. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I'm sharing here, Peter is telling Christians, Stop trying to win popularity contests. Accept that you'll be ridiculed, rejected, and maligned by those around you. It is better to stand up for Christ than to join them in their debauchery. When we shine as lights of the world, it will cause some to see God and worship Him, while others will reject Him and you as well. 
Peter is warning us to be prepared to lose family, to lose friends and neighbors better or being ready to accept ridicule and rejection with joy, with a deeper trust in God. Now I know this is a hard saying. And I know some of you are struggling with your family and maybe at work and with some friends and even in the neighborhood. I mean, I remember the first time we were invited, we, we moved into our, our um, neighborhood uh, in July, July 4th. And uh, Emily had met some of our neighbors. We got invited to their July 4th party. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know what's going to happen. Someone's going to ask, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, what am I going to say? So we're in there and everyone's kind of got their beers and there's going on. And this is not against beer type thing, okay? So I, I'm not making a, a thing like that. But you can just tell that as soon as I tell people what I'm going to do, it just makes people uncomfortable. And then people just kind of quiet and, you know, I, you, when I used to golf, it, you should never tell people, other people that you were golfing with wh- what you were because it just, it just make it worse. So I used to tell people, well, what do you do? So I thought, okay, I'll tell them what I do. So they come, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a CEO of a nonprofit organization that, that, that specializes in life change. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's just a small one. So I go on and on. Of course, I, you know, I realize I can't do that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to go off. And, oh, yeah. So they tell me, well, I'm a pastor. Oh. Next thing I know, I'm just kind of sitting there by myself. <laughs> All right, I guess time to go home. We've never been invited. We've lived there, what, 11 years? We've never been invited back to anyone's neighbors or any of our neighbors except for Tony. And that was even a tough one itself. So... Uh, <laughs> But it's just normal, isn't it? You've probably experienced something similar, that there's going to be a time when you stand. And we need to recognize that. Let me tell you, children that are here and parents who have their children here, you need to prepare your children for that. You need to prepare them, for they themselves will be attacked. Number four, believers though, it is worth continuing because believers will be rewarded for their sacrifice and their suffering and sanctification. Because we will fight sin, because we will resist it, because we will run from it, we will suffer for it. We will be ridiculed, maligned. Even the battle against sin itself is so much difficult. That's why sometimes we just give in because it's so difficult. But however, (coughs) Peter is saying you will be rewarded for that sacrifice, for that suffering. (coughs) Look what he says in verse 5. For those who continue in those passions and in those lusts. He says they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead in verse 5. In verse 6 he goes on. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, who were dead, who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter points to the end of time of eternity and judgment. Peter is simply pointing out that you and I can endure suffering with joy because in the end, listen to this, because in the end, we will be vindicated and exalted. You and I can endure ridicule, rejection, and repercussions for our faith because in the end, we will be vindicated and exalted. Those that continue to reject Christ and embrace sin will one day stand before him and give account. Scripture tells us that they will not have any excuse. Pastor Eric Davis of Wyoming writes in the Crippled Great blog of the shock that those that have rejected Jesus will face at the final judgment. I'm going to go through these quickly. He says the shock that Christ will be their absolute judge. They do not believe this. The shock of the thoroughness which Christ will judge them. 
Their lives and tired thoughts will be exposed. The shock of justice with which God will judge them. There'll be no bending. There'll be no grading on a curve. The shock of how things that they cherished in life are now utterly irrelevant and meaningless. Those things that they pursued with all abandoning will not have any meaning. And the shock that there will be no discussion or appeal regarding their sentence. There is no one else to go to. He is the Supreme Court. And then lastly, their shock that their time in hell will be unending. So do not go back to that way of life. For I'm telling you, if you are indulging in that type of lifestyle, indulging in that, let me warn you, Scripture says that you may not be a Christian at all. But the one who is of Christ endures with joy the suffering that follows those who trust in him. For Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will what? Save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And there are so many of our friends and families that will forfeit it all. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels? You can endure suffering because in the end you will be vindicated and you will be exalted. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be united with God for all eternity. For he will be our God and he, we will be his children. God promises believers that he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself shall be with us. We saw that in our scripture reading that Randy gave us. and He gave us that beautiful word picture of what heaven will be. You see, this is the hope that awaits all those that have embraced the cross. In verse 6, when Peter writes that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, he is not writing about a second chance of redemption after death, but the hope of those that have embraced Christ, that have endured suffering, and have died without seeing the return of Christ. Peter has encouraged them, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Their suffering in their death was not to vain. Peter and Paul did not die in vain. In other words, God has not wasted their suffering. You can imagine how some believers might struggle in their faith while enduring suffering as they see those who who continue in sin continue to live and seem to live well. The world looks and ridicules us for our faith and our stance in living righteously, proclaiming that following Christ is no better than rejecting him, for we all die. So what benefit if I follow Christ or if I don't? We all just die. Though though this is not scripture nor inspired by God, there's an ancient book called The Wisdom of Solomon. And in it, it agrees with scripture when he writes, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, the sinful, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an affliction. And they're going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. 
Having been disciplined a little, a little, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of himself. Like gold in the furnace, he tried them. And like a sacrificial burnt offering, he accepted them. The world looks at our, our, our decision to follow him and says, that is folly. Just enjoy life. Live, live hard and live, what's that? Live long, hard and leave a good looking corpse, whatever that phrase may be. But this passage agrees in three points with scripture. That the wicked think the death of the, of the righteous is disaster and punishment. The difficulties of the presence are only temporary. And believers, though, have a future hope of life. Peter points to the hope of resurrection in the life of believers. Suffering in our sanctification is worth it. God will see us to the end. Hold on to Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Would you listen to me as we get ready to close here? Sometimes you may be tempted to think that God has given you too much to handle. Or you question the goodness of God or the wisdom of the purposes and suffering in your life. Your suffering may have become so hard and so difficult that it's become hard for you to keep your eyes focused on God's promises and God's goodness. Let me say this, please. Do not despair. God has not forgotten you. God has not neglected you and God has not abandoned you. If there's a still a problem that you and I have in living this out, is there not? Enduring suffering with joy and trusting that God has a purpose in it, we struggle with that. In the midst of those fires, it's so difficult to see an escape, to see eternal rewards. What's the problem? Well, one pastor gives an honest evaluation of his own struggle when he writes this. I often find myself praying for a change in circumstances. Let me read this again. This pastor says, I often find myself praying for a change in circumstance when what I really need is to grow in my knowledge of God. See, so many of us are trying to avoid the suffering, are trying to get through it real quickly, are trying to deflect it instead of recognizing that instead of asking God to change it, I need to ask God to give me strength to get through it. God hasn't promised you avoidance, but he says, while you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for I will be with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. And so here today, what are you praying? God, stop this in my life. I think that's a good prayer. Paul prayed that three times. Lord, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. But God says, no, my grace is sufficient. So I would challenge you, change your prayer to Lord, help me to endure this suffering. Help me to fight this sin to the nth degree. For what you need to know is who God is and his purpose for that. Christ has freed us from the dominion of sin. We're no longer enslaved. We no longer have to live through it. We're to joyfully accept 
the world's ridicule and attacks, knowing that our self-sacrifice and our self-control and our self-denial leads to God's glory. I'd like to end with this, and I think this is on the monitor. The psalmist answers really what Paul or Peter is writing here in Psalms 37, where the psalmist writes, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't worry about those that are maligning you. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Prepare to battle. Arm yourselves with the thinking that I'm a new creature, ready to suffer for the sake of Christ, that he may be glorified and that I may become more like him. For one day he will vindicate and exalt me and he will be my God and I will be with him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as the worship team makes their way up and take a moment to pause and to consider and to pray and respond to the Holy Spirit. And I would ask you today, do you have a new way of thinking? Do you recognize that suffering, whatever that suffering may be, is ordained from God? Recognizing that it's God's purpose to make us freer from sin and to make us more like him. Are you still struggling with the passions of your youth? Are you still struggling with sin? Would you resist it? Would you ask God for strength to fight it? Do not indulge in it. And then to joyfully accept the ridicule, the rejection, and the repercussions of following Christ. Knowing that it leads to the glory of God and to our exhortation. And then in the end, would you trust in the one who has called you to follow him? Father, we ask for your grace to do such things. For these are difficult for us. For many, the price is very high. But yet, Lord, we count the cost and we see that following you is worth more. You are the pearl of great price. So prepare us this morning to have a stronger heart, a stronger, greater measure of faith to think in such a way and to follow through. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.